0: Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. Thanks for joining us this morning. As uh, as we get ready to dig in, he is risen. He is risen indeed. That's right. Uh we are in the 50-day window after Easter that is known as the Feast of Pentecost. I wrote about it in my newsletter this week if you read it. Um I don't know, I was a little bit nerdy this week, but uh some stuff that kind of excited me, hope you enjoyed it as well. It's called the Great 50 Day Feast. Um, it began with the offering, the first offering or the first fruits offering of the barley harvest at the end of Passover feast. And it lasted then, that was the first day. And then for 49 days after that, seven seven weeks, right? Seven groups of seven. Uh, there was a, a season of waiting for the feast on the 50th day when they would celebrate the incoming of the full harvest. We're in that window, uh, not just in our calendar in those 50 days. We're in that window in God's redemptive plan. We are standing between the first fruits resurrection of Christ and the full incoming harvest of the resurrection of all the redeemed when God's people will be redeemed, restored, and, uh, and ultimately brought into his kingdom as the first fruits of the new humanity to be co-heirs with Christ. Uh, it is an incredible time to be alive. All right, we're heading back to Romans 8 heading back to Romans 8. Let's grab our Bibles. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open that up to Romans 8. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 944. If you've got your app or whatever, go ahead and open that up. While you're flipping over there, you guys remember the uh, the Mission Impossible movies? Yeah. I hope, I hope so, because the last one came out, what, in 2018? Uh, so, you know, that was like, what, four years ago? Uh, the first one came out in 1996, uh, before some of you were born. Um, Tom Cruise has been doing that thing for a long time. Um, and, and for those of you that are fans, you'll be glad to know, um, there's gonna be a Mission Impossible 7 and 8. Uh, 7 is already in post-production. 8 is currently filming. They're gonna be released over the next several years, just in case, you know, Tom Cruise dies before the, uh, not that I'm wishing that on anybody, but he can't keep doing his own stunts. I'll tell you, that guy, uh, pretty amazing. He's been playing this character of Ethan Hunt, and, um, and he's always a hair's breadth away from complete disaster. That's what the whole movie franchise is about, right? You get this, this mission impossible statement. Like, here's your impossible mission, and for the rest of the two hours, he is running, right? I've even seen clips of Tom Cruise running. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen those things. He runs in every movie. It's, it, you there's like, out there on YouTube, there's like a 16-minute montage of of him running in all of his films. He loves running. But he's always just like one step ahead of complete destruction. You know what I'm saying? Like he's always just one step ahead. That's the whole franchise. That's what it's all about. And uh, and I was thinking about it. That's honestly how many of us experience life, right? We just feel like we're one step ahead. And sometimes not even one step ahead, right? We're running up a hillslide while it's crumbling underneath our feet, and we're just doing our best to, to do the, the the impossible, right? To actually keep running while the thing under us is is falling. And, and um, we feel like we're just one step ahead of disaster. And that's because we never really know what's coming. We never know, right? We think we know. We prepare for what we know. And a lot of times we become overconfident in what we know. But it's only a matter of time before all that comes crushing down around us, right? That momentary feeling of, oh, yeah, I got this under control. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. It's only a matter of time, right? Before we're like, ah, I didn't see that coming, right? That's life. That's how we live life. We live life like it is mission impossible, continually running, because that's how we experience time. Time is always this thing that's flowing toward us that brings things we have no idea what it's going to bring. And as a result, we're living in the uncertainty like, we live in the present, but we're always wondering about the next moment, right? Listen, that's how we experience time. Because of that, we assume that is the universal nature of time. But that is not how God experiences time, right? God's name, Yahweh, when He revealed Himself in the Old Testament, and Moses is like, what's your name? Right? He's sending Moses back to Egypt. It's like, at least tell me your name so I can tell him who sent me. He's like, my name is Yahweh. Yahweh is a Hebrew word that simply means I am. I am that I am. I am, I am the ever present. Right? I'm not, I was, not, I will be, just I am. Because God exists both in time and outside of time. He's the ever present one, right? He, he, he is in, in, in all time simultaneously, which means he is in time, but he's also Outside of time, right? We talked about the verse last week in in Peter where it says a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day, right? All moments are one moment to God. And every moment, it's as if that's the only moment that existed. He is both outside of time in a transcendent sense and in time, eminent in time, uh, experiencing it more deeply and profoundly than we ever could because for him, time is not a river that flows. It is uh, a continual experience uh, for him. Not surprisingly, then, God is going to experience the process of our salvation differently than we do, which is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, We figure it out as we go right? We're introduced to ideas. We consider those ideas. We grow an understanding of those ideas. And and as we move and progress, we learn how to submit to those ideas or live out those ideas or experience those things to a greater degree, right? God, for whom time does not pass, experiences all of that very, very differently than we do. And not only is he timeless, he's sovereign. He is all-knowing and all-powerful. So he not only sits outside of time, he is in control of all time. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing takes him off guard. Y'all, this is really good news. This is really good news for us. It can be intellectually challenging for us. It can be um, philosophically disturbing when we get into the weeds of of the implications of all of this. But in the big picture... This is incredibly good news because it means even though we make choices, and we do make choices, even though we exercise our will and we do exercise our will, you can never exercise a choice. You can never uh, express your will in such a way that you derail the will of God. You can never take a step that takes you outside of the circle of God's intent to bless you. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to be taking a look at Romans eight twenty eight through 30. Let's read our verses together, and then we're going to dig into this a little bit, starting in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Um, three verses. Five words. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Um this this these this tiny little passage, this tiny little passage is like Paul takes a rock and he and he skips it over an infinitely deep sea, and each time it touches down, it just gives us one more word, one more glimpse, one more um a uh, uh, look at something that is infinitely complex because it is rooted in the infinitely uh complex nature of God and and what it means to be God. It's a bottomless ocean, right? So these five words only give us a glimpse into God's experience of our justification, of our salvation, our glorification. Um, and there are two points I want to make before we dig in. Uh, first of all, I'm just gonna these five words get way more attention than they deserve. I'm just gonna go there. <coughs> theologically minded people spend way too much time obsessing on these five words, right? I'm just, it's not that they're not important. They are. They're ridiculously important. Um, and I'm not in any way diminishing their importance, right? Um, but Paul has written eight chapters up to this point, explaining our experience of salvation, describing God's plan for our justification and persuading us to respond to it. And then in two verses, he gives us five words. And there are some people that will spend 99% of their time focused on these five words instead of trying to understand the hundreds and hundreds of other words. They become obsessed with, with a point of theological intrigue and debate instead of becoming obsessed with the God that is revealed in these words. Um, These five words are insightful and necessary. But I do think it's interesting that in a letter that is so carefully crafted, he literally only gives them five words in two verses that tells us uh something about where we should be investing all of our energy into responding to God, believing God and growing in grace instead of becoming obsessed with theological uh debates. These five words are important but they're not the main point. They're not even close. The point, in fact, the five the point the, the five words are even given uh is to tell us uh, to convince us That, that God is in fact working all things together for good. That He has a plan based on the resurrection of Christ to raise a whole harvest. Right? That, that Jesus was the firstborn of the new creation. The firstborn of the new humanity. And that we will be raised. We will be conformed to His image. We will be created not just in the image of God, but recreated in the image of Jesus. Right? How do we know this is going to happen? Because we have a God who not only can make it happen, but is determined that it will happen. That's the point. How do we know it's going to happen? Because God has decreed that it will happen. And what God decrees comes to pass. Secondly, while we look in these verses at salvation through the experience of our sovereign god right we 've been looking at salvation through our experience for the last eight chapters in these in these couple of verses we 're given a glimpse of what our salvation looks like from god 's perspective what his experience is in it um, i want to I want to make sure that we understand that just because we 're seeing that god 's experience in our salvation is different from ours, it does not negate ours that in fact in scripture there's we can expect and we discover. That when we're describing something as complex as God's experience and our experience, there are going to be mysteries that are so complex that they simply cannot be resolved logically. And there is a mystery here. Now, here's the problem. We hate mysteries. We hate things that seem to be paradoxes, that, that seem to be apparent opposites that don't seem to resolve together, right? They create tensions. And here's the thing. We're horrible at tension. We hate tension, right? And so what do we do? We gravitate toward taking things that exist in tension, and we take tensions to be managed, and we try to turn them into problems to be solved. And when we turn them into problems to be solved, what we do is is we try to diffuse the tension. We try to get rid of the apparent paradox, the difficulty that we have. What's the mystery at the heart of this? What is the mystery or the tension that these verses reveal? It's the mystery of will. How can we have a will when God has a sovereign will? How can we have genuine ability to make choices when we have a God who by His very nature must decree all that is and will be? Because God doesn't discover the future like we discover the future. He does not uh, respond to what is like we respond to what is. He is the ever-present I am who exists both in and outside of time. He is, he is all-powerful and all-knowing. There is nothing to which he could respond because he is already on the other side of the event before it occurs. How can we, who are creatures of time, have a will when there is a God whose will supersedes all other wills. That's the mystery. That's the tension. Right? And here's the thing. Scripture is continually appealing to me to exercise my will. Right? The first eight chapters of the book of Romans were this appeal to us to respond to the love of God. To believe the incredible promises of God given to us in Christ to recognize that God has intervened in our time in a way that it appeals to us to respond to that. How can I, as a creature of will, have free will? If God has, before I was even born, decreed all things. And as we see life unfolding, it simply fulfills His decree. I like Ephesians 1.11 specifically. You don't have to flip over there, but it just says God works all things according to His good pleasure. Like all things. I love how universal that is. Like how many things does God not work together for His good pleasure? Like no things. You know what I'm saying? Like all is like pretty much everything, right? When I got up this morning, did I choose to put on a green shirt? Or did God decree... That Steve Mizell, on this date, this Sunday, would have a green shirt in his closet that he would choose and that he would put it on. You're like, Steve, come on, man. That's like, you think God's that obsessed with details? I'm telling you, God can't help but be obsessed with details because he is God. There are no details to God. There's nothing that is so minute that it does not play a major role in his understanding and experience of reality. He works all things together. He works all things according to His good pleasure. Did I wear a green shirt because I wanted to or because God wanted me to and decreed it? Do I even have any choice in the matter? That's the tension, y'all. I chose to wear this green shirt this morning. I am responsible for that choice because I made that choice and I am accountable for that choice and any consequences that come as a result of that choice come on me, right? And yet, I cannot, through the exercise of my free will, take one step outside of the sovereign decree of God. I cannot take God by surprise, nor can I take any step that God did not know in advance, nor did He decree that step would be taken. So do I have free will, or is God sovereign? Yes. Yes. That's the tension. That's the mystery at the heart of this whole thing. And, and listen, we get into trouble when we, we refuse to allow paradoxes to be paradoxes, when we refuse to allow mysteries to be mysteries. This is the theological concept of concurrence, which is a completely nonsensical statement that helps us make sense of this tension. This is the statement of concurrence. God works out his sovereign plan through the agency of our free will. God works out his sovereign plan through the agency of our free will. If you think about that long enough, you're going to be like, Steve, that makes no sense. It actually makes perfect sense, as long as you're willing to accept that it's paradoxical. And it is, in its tension, a clear statement of of what we're finding in our passage. So, let's look at our verses. There, I've set the table. That's fun. Uh, Our verses. Our verses are often called the golden chain of God's providence. Because there are five links in this chain. Each one of them is critical to the next. They begin in eternity past. They move to eternity future as far as our experience goes, but they're all stated in a single time from God's experience. Every single one of these verbs is stated in the aorist tense, which is a Greek past tense verb. That means that it's something that occurred in the past that has ongoing present effects. So whether we're talking about for us something that's in the past or in the future, to God it's all in the past. Because the decree of God is something that was settled in God and was never even decided by God. Because God never changes. God's will never evolves. The decree of God has been settled in the will of God from eternity past. And because of that, even though we experience this in a, an evolving experience of time, God Himself never does. What are the five links of the golden chain? Whom He foreknew, He predestined. Whom He predestined, He called. Whom He called, He justified. Whom He justified, He glorified. The chain begins in eternity past with the foreknowledge of God. It ends in eternity future with us being fully glorified. Um, part of the, the harvest of the new humanity raised with Christ conformed to the image of Jesus. Each link in the chain is stated with absolute certainty. right? Stated in the past tense with an authority of a, of a settled decree, a settled decision on the part of a sovereign God, something that is done in the past with ongoing effects, even though the final link is still future to us. Each step is as certain as the one that came before it. And each one holds us with an absolute, unshakable security. Because we rest not in our ability to take hold of God, but in God's decree to take hold of us. So let's take a look at each one of these in turn. So it begins... Um, Begins in verse twenty-eight with the qualification. We know that all things, the that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, right. And then Paul takes a step back and explains what he means by called according to His purpose, right. For those whom He foreknew, He also be predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. The purpose, of course, is for us to be conformed to the image of His Son, right. That's the central thought and the central point of this entire passage that's that's the main thing right um, but the step back that he takes is is foreknowledge right for whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. foreknew um, this is probably the most controversial of the five words uh, mainly because I believe there's some bad teaching uh, floating around about what what this word means, right? One of the most common misunderstandings that I have heard over the years is I've heard people trying to explain this verse or, or make sense of it is something that I call the corridors of time theory. And the idea behind that is is that God, in at some point in the eternal past, looked down the corridors of time and could see who was going to choose him and so he preemptively chose them. He looked down the corridors of time and he and he saw who would believe in him. And because he saw they would believe in him, he chose them to believe. Which of course puts God in a position of responding, not initiating. Puts God in a position where, where he is um, putting in many ways the authority of sovereignty in our ability to choose Him instead of His decree to choose us. The problem is it doesn't fit. It's not what the verse says. I mean, take a look again at, at verse 29. For those whom He foreknew. What did He foreknow? Something about us or us? The verse says pretty clearly that He foreknew us, not something about us. He didn't foreknow that we were going to believe in Him and therefore He chose us. He foreknew us. This word is used six times in the New Testament. Four of those times. It's used to mean that he knew someone instead of something about that someone. I mean, think about it like this, y'all. I know Tom Cruise does all of his own stunts. But I know Lauren. Do you get the difference? Like, I know something about Tom Cruise... But I know Lawrence. See, that word can be used to not just mean an intellectual knowledge of something that is regarding somebody. It can mean relationship. To know somebody means much more than just to know something about them. It means to know them in a relational sense. To see them, to understand them, to to value them um, on a positive side, right? See, when it says that God foreknew us, it doesn't mean that He foreknew something about us. Right? It means that He had a relationship with us before we existed. I've known Lauren since I was 17 years old. She's been my best friend ever since. Right? I know Lauren and I've had a relationship with her for that period of time. God foreknew us. And what that means is that in eternity past, God knew you and had a relationship with you. Like, like he didn't just one day have a creative idea. Hmm, Steve Mizell. That's a name. I'll create a person that matches the name, and I'll know that person. You know why? Because there was never a time in God's experience where he didn't know everything he currently knows. God for eternity past. God in his timeless existence knew you. There has never been a time that you are not in the heart of God. There was never a time when you were insignificant to God. There was never a time When it says that He foreknew us, what it means, it doesn't mean that He looked down the quarters of time and saw the potentiality of who we were and what we might be. It meant that He had a relationship with us in advance of our existing. He decreed our existence before we existed. He knew us before we knew ourselves. Believer in Christ, you have been in God's heart for all of eternity. He intended for you to be born. He intended to bless you before you were born. He foreknew you. And whom He foreknew, He predestined. Predestination is the second link in the golden chain. The first is is this relational connection of foreknowledge. The second is the defining of the blessing. We were predestined. The Greek word prohorizo. Uh, means to mark out the boundaries in advance, right? Arizo means to, to mark the boundaries, to set apart, to designate for a purpose, to ordain. Pro means to do it in advance, um, right? He didn't just know about us. He knew us, and in knowing us, decreed our destiny. That, and, and specifically, what were the boundaries that he marked, right? I want you to see back again, because I want you to see this is the heart, For whom He uh, foreknew, He also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. This is the crowning jewel in the crown of Romans 8. This is the greatest truth, the most beautiful aspect of the blessing of God. He has predestined you not only to be created in His image, but recreated in the image of His Son. To not just be of your first father Adam, to be, be of your, your, your last father, the last Adam. To be human as humans were truly created to be. Imaging God to his glory and exercising our stewardship, our dominion for the good of all that's been entrusted to us. That is what we've been predestined to, marked out before. The blessing was marked in advance that we would be part of this new humanity, this new creation of God. There was never a time when you weren't set apart for this blessing. There was never a time in which this blessing was in doubt or threatened because you were predestined as part of the eternal purpose of God. And those whom he predestined, he called. Take a look at the the ongoing. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse thirty. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Uh, to call, right? It means to summon, to to utter a name, uh, to to summon, to call. What God had purposed in timeless eternity found expression in a specific moment in our history, in our time. What was part of the timeless existence of the decree of God became an experience in our existence when we actually heard God speak our name and call us to Himself. There is a general call that goes out to all humanity. Scripture says that that God desires everyone everywhere to repent, right? He and the call of the gospel is universal in its call. The invitation is a wide open invitation. There is a general call that goes out to everyone everywhere. Romans eight twenty eight is talking about a specific call, an effective call, a unique call. And when you hear this call, you respond. When you hear God speak your name, you look up. When you hear Him say, it's time to come home, you turn your feet toward home. You come to yourself and you respond. How do we know that this call is effective? Because everyone He called, is justified. The next link in the chain. So, what does that mean in practical reality? Like, what I thought, I thought right? I thought, I thought when I believed in God, that was my response to God. That's how I took hold of the promise of God and received the grace of God, right? Well, here's the mystery. All Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right, it says that, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And even that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. Even your faith isn't yours. Yes, you receive the grace of God through faith, but even your faith is a gift of God. You don't have the ability to generate anything to take hold of the work of God. Otherwise, it becomes a work by which you depend. Even your faith is a response. And even your faith is a gift. And when God calls... We respond. He doesn't just give you a promise, He gives you the faith to receive it. And as a result, those whom He calls, He justifies, right? Take a look at the next link in the chain, right? Those whom He called, He also justified. Now, there's a whole world of meaning in that word. Um, we have spent, I don't even know how many Sundays. Talking about God's work of justification on our behalf, how Jesus was our substitute in judgment, how, how God, um, you know, worked propitiation through Jesus who became the redemption, right? He, he paid the price. He died the death we deserve to die so we could receive the blessing we could never earn, right? That, that, that because of that, when we believe in Jesus, we're declared, right? by a sovereign God, right? The gavel comes down and there's a a decree, a declaration. This one is justified. This one stands approved. This one is accepted, right? And and we saw the ridiculous reality that God justifies the ungodly, right? Romans 4, that, that he doesn't do it based on our works or our merit. He does it purely based on those who receive the gift of grace through faith. Those whom he called he justified. There's a whole world of meaning in this one word, but Paul doesn't pause to define it. He already's done that. He's spent chapters defining it. At this point, he isn't looking at the process of justification. He's looking at the decree of justification. Those that he called, he justified. Listen, in the timeless nature of God, before God had even undertaken the task of becoming man, to live the life we should have lived and die the death we deserve to die, to pay the price of our justification, before he had done the first step of the work that had to be done to redeem us, he declared us justified. How can God justify us even before Christ had paid the price of our justification? Because God is timeless. All right, that's why in the book of Revelation, Jesus is, is called the lamb that's been slain from, since the foundation of the world. Yes, Jesus broke into time at a specific stage of human history and lived a life as a Jewish man and then died the death of a, a Roman execution and then rose again. Yes, that happened. That is a real event that occurred in real human history. But while it happened as a real event in human history, it is an ongoing reality, a timeless eternal reality in the eternal nature of God's decree. In our experience, we have to hear the Gospel to respond in faith. In God's experience, this is one more stage in the outworking of a plan that is already known, decreed, and secured. Those whom He called he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. This is the final link in the chain. And honestly, I think the main point that Paul's making it. (laughs) This is the goal, right? Why why is Paul even laying out the sequential, uh, you know, these rocks skipping across these tremendous depths? Why is he... Because... He wants us to see as we are groaning in this current age, as we see the brokenness of the world hurting us and hurting people we love, as we see our enemy, the great dragon, thrashing and still causing destruction and suffering pain and anguish, as we see these things continue to melt down. Our hope is secure. God's plan is never in question. We're already glorified, y'all. Not in our experience, not in our time. That's a piece of time we're still waiting for right? Believer in Christ, you've been justified. You have not yet been glorified, not in your personal experience, right? You're not perfect. You still have your disordered desires. You still struggle with the flesh. You still have the brokenness of, of, of this creation in your body. You're still going to struggle with, with the second law of thermodynamics going to work on the very cells of your body. You're still going to have difficulties. You're still going to to deal with the loss of shalom in your own heart and in your relationships and, and in this world. All of those things continue to be true. But while you are living in this moment, it is just a moment. It is a night that is passing and the dawn is already emerging. And God's plan, His unshaken plan is that you will be glorified. And in God's decree, it's as certain as the fact that you would be born. You will be glorified because He's already declared that it has happened. I love that it's past tense, right? Right? I love that even though Paul writes this in this age where we're awaiting the future resurrection, we're awaiting the return of Christ, we're awaiting the full harvest that will come with the new humanity being raised in the likeness of Christ. From God's perspective, it's already done. This is the goal toward which God has been moving all things. This is the great victory. The kingdom of God manifest on earth, where we, as the redeemed of Christ, are recreated to bear the image of Christ. I want to remind you that when Paul uses the word glory, he's not using it in some vague sense of glowing brightness, right? We get so weird with our words. When we think about God's glory, we, we think, oh, bright, shining, moral purity, right? Um, glory meant for Paul the same thing it meant for the Romans, the same thing it means for us. It's honor. He's talking about the, the infinite honor that comes to us as those who are now Christ's brothers and sisters, co-heirs of the kingdom. Those, those ideas, the inheritance being conformed to the image of His Son and glory. Those are overlapping ideas, intertwined to tell a single story. The glorification that you are waiting is not that you might one day shine bright like the sun in moral purity. The glorification that you're waiting for is that one day you will actually be wearing as a cloak the honor Of being created in the image of God, recreated in the image of Christ, exercising the dominion over humanity, over the rest of creation, for the glory and honor of God and for the good of all He created. Yeah, we're still waiting. But we're groaning. And the more we see the beauty of what's being said here, the more we, we get past the, the theological distractions and debates, the, 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 the less we allow ourselves to become caught up in intellectual pride and, and theological. Man, I just, it's crazy what we do with these truths. I'm just going to go there. Like, I don't know if you know this. Uh, But people who, who really, really love these verses are often known for being the least like them. And I don't know why that is. People who love the doctrines of grace are sometimes the people less, the least conformed to the experience of grace. The most combative and arrogant. I mean, that's just a testimony once again to the depravity of the human heart and the beauty of the grace of God. Because even though many of us have been there, there's grace even for us. You know what I'm saying? At the end of the day, we will be glorified. Whether we were arrogant little amateur theologians or broken, hopeless, confused, and had no idea what predestination even was. Because God's decree is not dependent on us. We are dependent on it. And His decree is to bless us. His decree is to glorify us and to set us free into the joy, the freedom, the honor, the dignity, the purpose of the new creation. The point of these five words isn't to give us material for endless debate. The point of these five words is to comfort us in our groaning and increase our groaning. To increase our discomfort with what is and increase our ache for what will be. And as we enter into that, y'all, I'm going to remind you, that's what glory looks like right now. That's what it means to wear the honor of those that are, are in the process of experiencing the blessing of God. When we witness the brokenness of the world and groan for the kingdom to come, we honor the God of that kingdom and we give testimony to the rest of creation that this is not the way it's meant to be and it's not the way it's going to remain to be. We have a God who exists in time, who meets us in our experience, but praise that God because He exists outside of time. That means I can trust Him. That means I can rest in Him. That means that while I cannot understand Him, man, I can praise Him. Because I am as secure as He is strong, and I will be honored as much as I am loved. One final word as we wrap up. For those of you who are wrestling with the whole call of Christianity, maybe you're peeking over the fence into Christianity and and wondering if this is, you know, what is all this stuff and why would I believe it? Um, There's a danger that comes with um, analyzing the sovereignty of God. Because once again, we take attention to be managed, we turn it into a problem to be solved, and I've had more than one person look me in the face and simply say, I don't believe in God because God did not declare I would. And in a sense, what they're doing is creating a loophole where they can blame God for not having to wrestle with the things revealed about God. Listen, y'all, there is an invitation before you. That invitation is to come to the party of grace through the mercy that God has extended to you through the work of Christ. You are responsible to believe that message, to receive that grace, and in receiving it, to make your election known. But you are responsible for the choice, and you'll be accountable. For the choice that you make, because we are free, even though God works out His sovereignty through the agency of our free will. So I invite you to the party. Why wouldn't you come? Why wouldn't you come? We close this in word prayer. We're gonna create a little bit of space for reflection this morning. Instead of putting up reflection questions, I'm going to put up a single verse. And I'm just going to ask you to spend some time. Let the Spirit cry out, Abba, Father, within you. Respond. And then pray. Do business with God however He would direct. Let me pray for us as we move into our, our time of response. We'll share communion after that. Father, we thank You for the incredible gift of grace. We thank You that even though the true nature of all reality is something that is beyond our ability to comprehend, you still humble yourself to be revealed in a way that we can in some small way understand. You, who are transcendent, Reveal Yourself in the time and in the space of our lives. You who are infinite, meet us in our finiteness. You who are strong, meet us in our weakness. You who are the embodiment of wisdom, tolerate our foolishness. Because You love us. And You have loved us from eternity past. And you will love us for eternity future. Awaken our hearts to that love. Humble us. And give us a deeper and more profound yearning for the incredible blessing that is yet ahead of us. You guys take a few moments and pray. We'll share communion communion in just a moment.